Part One of The Sandman in Weird Tales, Volume One by E. T. A. Hoffman, translated by J. T. Bilby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. The Sandman. Note. The Sandman forms the first of a series of tales called The Night Pieces and was published in 1817. Return to text. Nathaniel to Lothair. I know you are all very uneasy because I have not written for such a long, long time. Mother, to be sure, is angry, and Clara, I dare say, believes I am living here in riot and revelry, and quite forgetting my sweet angel, whose image is so deeply engraved upon my heart and mind. But that is not so. Daily and hourly do I think of you all, and my lovely Clara's form comes to gladden me in my dreams, and smiles upon me with her bright eyes, as graciously as she used to do in the days when I went in and out amongst you. Oh, how could I write to you in the distracted state of mind in which I have been, and which until now has quite bewildered me? A terrible thing has happened to me. Dark forebodings of some awful fate threatening me are spreading themselves out over my head like black clouds, impenetrable to every friendly ray of sunlight. I must now tell you what has taken place. I must. That I see well enough. But only to think upon it makes the wild laughter burst from my lips. Oh, my dear, dear Lothair, what shall I say? To make you feel if only in an inadequate way, that that which happened to me a few days ago could thus really exercise such a hostile and disturbing influence upon my life. Oh, that you were here to see for yourself. But now you will, I suppose, take me for a superstitious ghost seer. In a word, the terrible thing which I have experienced, the fatal effect of which I in vain exert every effort to shake off, is simply that some days ago, namely on the 30th of October at 12 o'clock at noon, a dealer in weather glasses came into my room and wanted to sell me one of his wares. I bought nothing and threatened to kick him downstairs, whereupon he went away of his own accord. You will conclude that it can only be very peculiar relations, relations intimately intertwined with my life, that can give significance to this event and that it must be the person of this unfortunate hawker which has had such a very inimical effect upon me. And so it really is. I will summon up all my faculties in order to narrate to you, calmly and patiently, as much of the early days of my youth as will suffice to put matters before you, in such a way that your keen, sharp intellect may grasp everything clearly and distinctly, in bright and living pictures. Just as I am beginning, I hear you laugh, and Clara say, What's all this childish nonsense about? Well, laugh at me, laugh heartily at me, pray do. But, good God, my hair is standing on end, and I seem to be entreating you to laugh at me in the same sort of frantic despair in which Franz Moore entreated Daniel to laugh him to scorn. Note. See Schiller's Räuber, Act 5, Scene 1. Franz Moore, seeing that the failure of all his villainous schemes is inevitable, and that his own ruin is close upon him, is at length overwhelmed with the madness of despair, and unburdens the terrors of his conscience to the old servant Daniel, 
bidding him laugh him to scorn. Return to text. But to my story. Except at dinner, we, i.e., I and my brothers and sisters, saw but little of our father all day long. His business, no doubt, took up most of his time. After our evening meal, which, in accordance with an old custom, was served at seven o'clock, we all went, mother with us, into father's room, and took our places around a round table. My father smoked his pipe, drinking a large glass of beer to it. Often he told us many wonderful stories, and got so excited over them that his pipe always went out. I used then to light it for him with a spill, and this formed my chief amusement. Often again he would give us picture books to look at, whilst he sat silent and motionless in his easy chair, puffing out such dense clouds of smoke that we were all, as it were, enveloped in mist. On such evenings mother was very sad, and directly it struck nine she said, Come, children, off to bed. Come, the sandman has come, I see. And I always did seem to hear something trampling upstairs with slow, heavy steps. That must be the sandman. Once, in particular, I was very much frightened at this dull trampling and knocking. As Mother was leading us out of the room, I asked her, Oh, Mamma, but who is this nasty sandman who always sends us away from Papa? What does he look like? There is no Sandman, my dear child, Mother answered. When I say the Sandman has come, I only mean that you are sleepy and can't keep your eyes open, as if somebody put sand in them. This answer of Mother's did not satisfy me. Nay, in my childish mind, the thought clearly unfolded itself that Mother denied there was a Sandman only to prevent us being afraid. Why, I always heard him come upstairs. Full of curiosity to learn something more about this Sandman and what he had to do with us children, I at length asked the old woman who acted as my youngest sister's attendant what sort of a man he was, the Sandman. Why, Nathaniel, darling, don't you know, she replied. Oh, he's a wicked man who comes to little children when they won't go to bed and throws handfuls of sand in their eyes so that they jump out of their heads all bloody and he puts them into a bag and takes them to the half-moon as food for his little ones, and they sit there in the nest and have hooked beaks like owls, and they pick naughty little boys and girls' eyes out with them. After this I formed in my own mind a horrible picture of the cruel sandman. When anything came blundering upstairs at night I trembled with fear and dismay, and all that my mother could get out of me were the stammered words, The sandman! The sandman! whilst the tears coursed down my cheeks. Then I ran into my bedroom and the whole night through tormented myself with the terrible apparition of the Sandman. I was quite old enough to perceive that the old woman's tale about the Sandman and his little one's nest in the half-moon couldn't be altogether true. Nevertheless, the Sandman continued to be for me a fearful incubus, and I was always seized with terror. My blood always ran cold, not only when I heard anybody come up the stairs, but when I heard anybody noisily open my father's room door and go in. Often he stayed away for a long season altogether. Then he would come several times in close succession. This went on for years, without my being able to accustom myself to this fearful apparition, without the image of the horrible Sandman growing any fainter in my imagination. His intercourse with my father began to occupy my fancy ever more and more. 
I was restrained from asking my father about him by an unconquerable shyness. But as the years went on, the desire waxed stronger and stronger within me to fathom the mystery myself and to see the fabulous Sandman. He had been the means of disclosing to me the path of the wonderful and the adventurous, which so easily find lodgment in the mind of the child. I liked nothing better than to hear or read horrible stories of goblins, witches, Tom Thumbs, and so on. But always at the head of them all stood the Sandman, whose picture I scribbled in the most extraordinary and repulsive forms with both chalk and coal everywhere, on the tables and cupboard doors and walls. When I was ten years old, my mother removed me from the nursery into a little chamber off the corridor not far from my father's room. We still had to withdraw hastily whenever on the stroke of nine the mysterious unknown was heard in the house. As I lay in my little chamber, I could hear and go into my father's room, and soon afterwards I fancied there was a fine and peculiar-smelling steam spreading itself through the house. As my curiosity waxed stronger, my resolve to make somehow or other the Sandman's acquaintance took deeper root. Often, when my mother had gone past, I slipped quickly out of my room into the corridor, but I could never see anything, for always, before I could reach the place where I could get sight of him, the Sandman was well inside the door. At last, unable to resist the impulse any longer, I determined to conceal myself in Father's room and there wait for the Sandman. One evening I perceived from my father's silence and mother's sadness that the Sandman would come. Accordingly, pleading that I was excessively tired, I left the room before nine o'clock and concealed myself in a hiding place close beside the door. The street door creaked, and slow, heavy, echoing steps crossed the passage towards the stairs. Mother hurried past me with my brothers and sisters. Softly, softly, I opened father's room door. He sat, as usual, silent and motionless, with his back towards it. He did not hear me, and in a moment I was in and behind a curtain drawn before my father's open wardrobe, which stood just inside the room. Nearer and nearer and nearer came the echoing footsteps. There was a strange coughing and shuffling and mumbling outside. My heart beat with expectation and fear. A quick step now close, close beside the door, a noisy rattle of the handle, and the door flies open with a bang. Recovering my courage with an effort, I take a cautious peep out. In the middle of the room in front of my father stands the Sandman, the bright light of the lamp falling full upon his face. The Sandman, the terrible Sandman, is the old advocate Coppelius, who often comes to dine with us. But the most hideous figure could not have awakened greater trepidation in my heart than this Coppelius did. Picture to yourself a large, broad-shouldered man with an immensely big head, a face the color of yellow ochre, gray, bushy eyebrows from beneath which two piercing, greenish, cat-like eyes glittered, and a prominent Roman nose hanging over his upper lip. His distorted mouth was often screwed up into a malicious smile. Then two dark red spots appeared on his cheeks, and a strange hissing noise proceeded from between his tightly clenched teeth. He always wore an ash-gray coat of an old-fashioned cut, a waistcoat of the same, and nether extremities to match, but black stockings and buckles set with stones on his shoes. 
His little wig scarcely extended beyond the crown of his head. His hair was curled round high up above his big red ears and plastered to his temples with cosmetic, and a broad closed hairbag stood out prominently from his neck, so that you could see the silver buckle that fastened his folded neckcloth. Altogether, he was a most disagreeable and horribly ugly figure, but what we children detested most of all was his big, coarse, hairy hands. We could never fancy anything that he had once touched. This he had noticed, and so, whenever our good mother quietly placed a piece of cake or sweet fruit on our plates, he delighted to touch it under some pretext or other, until the bright tears stood in our eyes, and from disgust and loathing we lost the enjoyment of the tidbit that was intended to please us. And he did just the same thing when father gave us a glass of sweet wine on holidays. Then he would quickly pass his hand over it, or even sometimes raise the glass to his blue lips, and he laughed quite sardonically when all we dared to do was to express our vexation in stifled sobs. He habitually called us the little brutes, and when he was present we might not utter a sound and we cursed the ugly, spiteful man who deliberately and intentionally spoilt all our little pleasures. Mother seemed to dislike this hateful Coppelius as much as we did, for as soon as he appeared, her cheerfulness and bright and natural manner were transformed into sad, gloomy seriousness. Father treated him as if he were a being of some higher race, whose ill manners were to be tolerated, whilst no efforts ought to be spared to keep him in good humour. He had only to give a slight hint, and his favorite dishes were cooked for him, and rare wine uncorked. As soon as I saw this Coppelius, therefore, the fearful and hideous thought arose in my mind that he, and he alone, must be the Sandman. But I no longer conceived of the Sandman as the bugbear in the old nurse's fable, who fetched children's eyes and took them to the half-moon as food for his little ones. No but as an ugly, spectre-like fiend bringing trouble and misery and ruin, both temporal and everlasting, everywhere, wherever he appeared. I was spellbound on the spot. At the risk of being discovered, and, as I well enough knew, of being severely punished, I remained as I was, with my head thrust through the curtains, listening. My father received Coppelius in a ceremonious manner. "'Come, to work!' cried the latter in a hoarse, snarling voice, throwing off his coat. Gloomily and silently my father took off his dressing-gown, and both put on long black smock-frocks. Where they took them from I forgot to notice. Father opened the folding doors of a cupboard in the wall, but I saw that what I had so long taken to be a cupboard was really a dark recess, in which was a little hearth. Capelius approached it, and a blue flame crackled upwards from it. Round about were all kinds of strange utensils. Good God, as my old father bent down over the fire, how different he looked. His gentle and venerable features seemed to be drawn up by some dreadful convulsive pain into an ugly, repulsive, satanic mask. He looked like Capelius. Capelius plied the red-hot tongs and drew bright glowing masses out of the thick smoke and began assiduously to hammer them. I fancied that there were men's faces visible round about, but without eyes, having ghastly deep black holes where the eyes should have been. Eyes here, eyes here, cried Crepidius in a hollow sepulchral voice. My blood ran cold with horror. 
I screamed and tumbled out of my hiding place into the floor. Coppelius immediately seized upon me. You little brute! You little brute! He bleated, grinding his teeth. Then, snatching me up, he threw me on the hearth, so that the flames began to singe my hair. Now we've got eyes, eyes, a beautiful pair of children's eyes, he whispered, and thrusting his hands into the flames, he took out some red-hot grains and was about to strew them into my eyes. Then my father clasped his hands and entreated him, saying, Master, Master, let my Nathaniel keep his eyes. Oh, do let him keep them. Capelius laughed shrilly and replied, Well, then the boy may keep his eyes and whine and pule his way through the world. But we will now at any rate observe the mechanism of the hand and the foot. And therewith he roughly laid hold upon me so that my joints cracked and twisted my hands and my feet, pulling them now this way and now that. That's not quite right altogether. It's better as it was. The old fellow knew what he was about. Thus lisped and hissed Coppelius, but all around me grew black and dark. A sudden convulsive pain shot through all my nerves and bones. I knew nothing more. I felt a soft, warm breath fanning my cheek. I awakened as if out of the sleep of death. My mother was bending over me. Is the sand man still there? I stammered. No, my dear child, he's been gone a long, long time. He'll not hurt you. Thus spoke my mother, as she kissed her recovered darling, and pressed him to her heart. But why should I tire you, my dear Lothair? Why do I dwell at such length on these details, when there's so much remains to be said? Enough. I was detected in my eavesdropping, and roughly handled by Capelius. Fear and terror had brought on a violent fever, of which I lay ill several weeks. Is the Sandman still there? These were the first words I uttered on coming to myself again, the first sign of my recovery, of my safety. Thus, you see, I have only to relate to you the most terrible moment of my youth, for you to thoroughly understand that it must not be ascribed to the weakness of my eyesight if all that I see is colorless, but to the fact that a mysterious destiny has hung a dark veil of clouds about my life, which I shall perhaps only break through when I die. Capelius did not show himself again. It was reported he had left the town. It was about a year later when, in pursuance of the old unchanged custom, we sat around the round table in the evening. Father was in very good spirits, and was telling us amusing tales about his youthful travels. As it was striking nine, we all at once heard the street door creak on its hinges, and slow, ponderous steps echoed across the passage and up the stairs. That is Coppelius, said my mother, turning pale. Yes, it is Coppelius, replied my father in a faint, broken voice. The tears started from my mother's eyes. But father, father, she cried, must it be so? This is the last time, he replied. This is the last time he will come to me, I promise you. Go now. Go and take the children. Go, go to bed. Good night. As for me, I felt as if I were converted into cold, heavy stone. I could not get my breath. As I stood there immovable, my mother seized me by the arm. Come, Nathaniel, do come along. I suffered myself to be led away. I went into my room. Be a good boy and keep quiet, 
mother called after me. Get into bed and go to sleep. But tortured by indescribable fear and uneasiness, I could not close my eyes. That hateful, hideous Coppelius stood before me with his glittering eyes, smiling maliciously down upon me. In vain did I strive to banish the image. Somewhere about midnight there was a terrific crack, as if a cannon were being fired off. The whole house shook. Something went rustling and clattering past my door. The house door was pulled to with a bang. That is Coppelius, I cried, terror-struck, and leapt out of bed. Then I heard a wild, heart-rending scream. I rushed into my father's room. The door stood open, and clouds of suffocating smoke came rolling towards me. The servant-maid shouted, Oh, my master, my master! On the floor in front of the smoking hearth lay my father, dead. His face burned black and fearfully distorted my sisters weeping and moaning around them, and my mother lying near them in a swoon. Coppelius, you atrocious fiend, you've killed my father, I shouted. My senses left me. Two days later, when my father was placed in his coffin, his features were mild and gentle again, as they had been when he was alive. I found great consolation in the thought that his association with the diabolical Coppelius could not have ended in his everlasting ruin. Our neighbors had been awakened by the explosion. The affair got talked about, and came before the magisterial authorities, who wished to cite Coppelius to clear himself, but he had disappeared from the place, leaving no traces behind him. Now when I tell you, my dear friend, that the weather-glass hawker I spoke of was the villain Coppelius, you will not blame me for seeing impending mischief in his inauspicious reappearance. He was differently dressed, but Coppelius's figure and features are too deeply impressed upon my mind for me to be capable of making a mistake in the matter. Moreover, he has not even changed his name. He proclaims himself here, I learn, to be a Piedmontese mechanician, and styles himself Giuseppe Coppola. I am resolved to enter the lists against him and revenge my father's death, let the consequences be what they may. Don't say a word to mother about the reappearance of this odious monster, Give my love to my darling Clara. I will write to her when I am in a somewhat calmer frame of mind. Adieu, etc. Clara to Nathaniel. You are right. You have not written to me for a very long time. But nevertheless, I believe that I still retain a place in your mind and thoughts. It is a proof that you were thinking a good deal about me when you were sending off your last letter to Brother Lothair for instead of directing it to him, you directed it to me. With joy I tore open the envelope, and did not perceive the mistake until I read the words, Oh, my dear, dear Lothair. Now I know I ought not to have read any more of the letter, but ought to have given it to my brother, but, as you have so often in innocent raillery made it a sort of reproach against me that I possessed such a calm and, for a woman, cool-headed temperament, that I should be like the woman we read of, if the house was threatening to tumble down, I should, before hastily fleeing, stop to smooth down a crumple in the window curtains. I need hardly tell you that the beginning of your letter quite upset me. I could scarcely breathe. There was a bright mist before my eyes. Oh, my darling Nathaniel, what could this terrible thing be that had happened? Separation from you, never to see you again, the thought was like a sharp knife in my heart. I read on and on. Your description of that horrid Coppelius made my flesh creep. 
I now learnt for the first time what a terrible and violent death your good old father died. Brother Lothair, to whom I handed over his property, sought to comfort me, but with little success. That horrid weather-glass hawker Giuseppe Coppola followed me everywhere, and I am almost ashamed to confess it, but he was able to disturb my sound and, in general, calm sleep with all sorts of wonderful dream shapes. But soon, the next day, I saw everything in a different light. Oh, do not be angry with me, my best beloved, if, despite your strange presentiment that Coppelius will do you some mischief, Lothair tells you I am in quite as good spirits and just the same as ever. I will frankly confess, it seems to me that all that was fearsome and terrible of which you speak existed only in your own self, and that the real true outer world had but little to do with it. I can quite admit that old Coppelius may have been highly obnoxious to you children, but your real detestation of him arose from the fact that he hated children. Naturally enough, the gruesome sandman of the old nurse's story was associated in your childish mind with old Coppelius, who, even though you had not believed in the sandman, would have been to you a ghostly bugbear, especially dangerous to children. His mysterious labours along with your father at night-time were, I dare say, nothing more than secret experiments in alchemy, with which your mother could not be over well pleased, owing to the large sums of money that most likely were thrown away upon them. And besides, your father, his mind full of the deceptive striving after higher knowledge, may probably have become rather indifferent to his family, as so often happens in the case of such experimentalists. So also it is equally probable that your father brought about his death by his own imprudence, and that Coppelius is not to blame for it. I must tell you that yesterday I asked our experienced neighbor, the chemist, whether in experiments of this kind an explosion could take place which would have a momentarily fatal effect. He said, oh, certainly, and described to me in his prolix and circumstantial way how it could be occasioned, mentioning at the same time so many strange and funny words that I could not remember them at all. Now I know you will be angry at your Clara, and will say, Of the mysterious, which often clasps man in its invisible arms, there's not a ray can find its way into this cold heart. She sees only the varied surface of the things of the world, and like the little child is pleased with the golden glittering fruit, at the kernel of which lies the fatal poison. Oh, my beloved Nathaniel, do you believe, then, that the intuitive prescience of a dark power working within us to our own ruin cannot exist also in minds which are cheerful, natural, free from care? But please forgive me that I, a simple girl, presume in any way to indicate to you what I really think of such an inward strife. After all, I should not find the proper words, and you would only laugh at me, not because my thoughts were stupid, but because I was so foolish as to attempt to tell them to you. If there is a dark and hostile power which traitorously fixes a thread in our hearts, in order that laying hold of it and drawing us by means of it along a dangerous road to ruin, which otherwise we should not have trod, if, I say, there is such a power, it must assume within us a form like ourselves. Nay, it must be ourselves for only in that way can we believe in it, and only so understood do we yield to it so far that it is able to accomplish its secret purpose. So long as we have sufficient firmness, 
fortified by cheerfulness, to always acknowledge foreign hostile influences for what they really are, whilst we quietly pursue the path pointed out to us by both inclination and calling, then this mysterious power perishes in its futile struggles to attain the form which is to be the reflected image of ourselves. It is also certain, Lothair adds, that if we have once voluntarily given ourselves up to this dark physical power, it often reproduces within us the strange forms which the outer world throws in our way, so that thus it is we ourselves who engender within ourselves the spirit which by some remarkable delusion we imagine to speak in that outer form. It is the phantom of our own self whose intimate relationship with and whose powerful influence upon our soul either plunges us into hell or elevates us to heaven. Thus you will see, my beloved Nathaniel, that I and Brother Lothair have well talked over the subject of dark powers and forces. And now, after I have with some difficulty written down the principal results of our discussion, they seem to me to contain many really profound thoughts. Lothair's last words, however, I don't quite understand altogether. I only dimly guess what he means, and yet I cannot help thinking it is all very true. I beg you, dear, strive to forget the ugly advocate Coppelius as well as the weather-glass hawker Giuseppe Coppola. Try and convince yourself that these foreign influences can have no power over you, that it is only the belief in their hostile power which can in reality make them dangerous to you. If every line of your letter did not betray the violent excitement of your mind, and if I did not sympathize with your condition from the bottom of my heart, I could in truth jest about the advocate Sandman and weather-glass hawker Coppelius. Pluck up your spirits. Be cheerful. I have resolved to appear to you as your guardian angel if that ugly man Coppola should dare take it into his head to bother you in your dreams, and drive him away with a good hearty laugh. I'm not afraid of him in his nasty hands, not the least little bit. I won't let him either, as advocate, spoil any dainty tidbit I've taken, or as Sandman rob me of my eyes. My darling, darling Nathaniel, eternally your, etc., etc. Nathaniel to Lothair. I am very sorry that Clara opened and read my last letter to you. Of course the mistake is to be attributed to my own absence of mind. She has written me a very deep philosophical letter, proving conclusively that Coppelius and Coppola only exist in my own mind, and are phantoms of my own self, which will at once be dissipated as soon as I look upon them in that light. In very truth, one can hardly believe that the mind which so often sparkles in those bright, beautifully smiling, childlike eyes of hers, like a sweet, lovely dream, could draw such subtle and scholastic distinctions. She also mentions your name. You have been talking about me. I suppose you have been giving her lectures, since she sifts and refines everything so acutely. But enough of this. I must now tell you it is most certain that the weather-glass hawker Giuseppe Coppola is not the advocate Coppelius. I am attending the lectures of our recently appointed professor of physics, who, like the distinguished naturalist, is called Spallanzani, and is of Italian origin. Note. Lazaro Spallanzani, a celebrated anatomist and naturalist, 1729-1799, to filled for several years the chair of natural history at Pavia 
and traveled extensively for scientific purposes in Italy, Turkey, Sicily, Switzerland, etc. Return to text. He has known Coppola for many years, and it is also easy to tell from his accent that he really is a Piedmontese. Coppelius was a German, though no honest German, I fancy. Nevertheless, I am not quite satisfied. You and Clara will perhaps take me for a gloomy dreamer, but no how can I get rid of the impression which Coppelius's cursed face made upon me. I am glad to learn from Speranzani that he has left the town. This Professor Speranzani is a very queer fish. He is a little fat man with prominent cheekbones, thin nose, projecting lips, and small piercing eyes. You cannot get a better picture of him than by turning over one of the Berlin pocket almanacs. Note, or almanacs of the muses, as they were also sometimes called, were periodicals, mostly yearly publications, containing all kinds of literary effusions, mostly, however, lyrical. They originated in the 18th century. Schiller, A. W. and F. Schlegel, Tieck and Chemissel, amongst others, conducted undertakings of this nature. Return to text. And looking at Cagliostro's portrait engraved by Chodubiecki, Palanzani looks just like him. Notes. Cagliostro. Joseph Balsamo, a Sicilian by birth, calling himself Count Cagliostro, one of the greatest impostors of modern times, lived during the latter part of the 18th century. See Carlyle's Miscellanies for an account of his life and character. Daniel Nicholas Czotowiecki, painter and engraver of Polish descent, was born at Danzig in 1726. For some years he was so popular an artist that few books were published in Prussia without plates or vignettes by him. The catalogue of his works is said to include 3,000 items. Return to text. Once lately, as I went up the steps to his house, I perceived that beside the curtain which generally covered a glass door there was a small chink. What it was that excited my curiosity I cannot explain, but I looked through. In the room I saw a female, tall, very slender, but of perfect proportions, and splendidly dressed, sitting at a little table, on which she had placed both her arms, her hands being folded together. She sat opposite the door so that I could easily see her angelically beautiful face. She did not appear to notice me, and there was moreover a strangely fixed look about her eyes. I might almost say they appeared as if they had no power of vision. I thought she was sleeping with her eyes open. I felt quite uncomfortable, and so I slipped away quietly into the professor's lecture room, which was close at hand. Afterwards, I learnt that the figure which I had seen was Palanzani's daughter, Olympia, whom he keeps locked in a most wicked and unaccountable way, and no man is ever allowed to come near her. Perhaps, however, there is, after all, something peculiar about her. Perhaps she is an idiot or something of that sort. But why am I telling you all this? I could have told you it all better and in more detail when I see you, for in a fortnight I shall be amongst you. I must see my dear sweet angel, my Clara, again. Then a little bit of ill-temper, which I must confess took possession of me after her fearfully sensible letter, will be blown away. And that is the reason why I am not writing to her as well today, with all best wishes, etc. Nothing more strange and extraordinary can be imagined, gracious reader, than what happened to my poor friend, the young student Nathaniel, and which I have undertaken to relate to you. 
Have you ever lived to experience anything that completely took possession of your heart and mind and thoughts to the utter exclusion of everything else? All was seething and boiling within you. Your blood, heated to fever pitch, leapt through your veins and inflamed your cheeks. Your gaze was so peculiar as if seeking to grasp in empty space forms not seen of any other eye and all your words ended in sighs betokening some mystery. Then your friends asked you, What is the matter with you, my dear friend? What do you see? And wishing to describe the inner pictures in all their vivid colors, with their lights and their shades, you in vain struggled to find words with which to express yourself. But you felt as if you must gather up all the events that had happened, wonderful, splendid, terrible, jocose, and awful, in the very first word so that the whole might be revealed by a single electric discharge, so to speak. Yet every word and all that partook of the nature of communication by intelligible sounds seemed to be colorless, cold, and dead. Then you try, and try again, and stutter and stammer, whilst your friends' prosy questions strike like icy winds upon your heart's hot fire until they extinguish it. But if, like a bold painter, you had first sketched in a few audacious strokes, the outline of the picture you had in your soul, you would then easily have been able to deepen and intensify the colors one after the other, until the varied throng of living figures carried your friends away, and they, like you, saw themselves in the midst of the scene that had proceeded out of your own soul. Strictly speaking, indulgent reader, I must indeed confess to you, nobody has asked me for the history of young Nathaniel but you are very well aware that I belong to that remarkable class of authors who, when they are bearing anything about in their minds in the manner I have just described, feel as if everybody who comes near them, and also the whole world to boot, were asking, Oh, what is it? Oh, do tell us, my good sir. Hence, I was most powerfully impelled to narrate to you Nathaniel's ominous life. My soul was full of the elements of wonder and extraordinary peculiarity in it, but for this very reason and because it was necessary in the very beginning to dispose you, indulgent reader, to bear with what is fantastic, and that is not a little thing, I racked my brain to find a way of commencing the story in a significant and original manner, calculated to arrest your attention. To begin with Once Upon a Time, the best beginning for a story seemed to me too tame, with In the small country town S. Blank lived, rather better, at any rate, allowing plenty of room to work up to the climax. Or to plunge at once in medias race. Go to the devil, cried the student Nathaniel, his eyes blazing wildly with rage and fear when the weather-glass hawker Giuseppe Coppola. Well, that is what I really had written, when I thought I detected something of the ridiculous in Nathaniel's wild glance, and the history is anything but laughable. I could not find any words which seemed fitted to reflect in even the feeblest degree the brightness of the colors of my mental vision. I determined not to begin at all. So I pray you, gracious reader, accept the three letters which my friend Lothair has been so kind as to communicate to me as the outline of the picture, into which I will endeavor to introduce more and more color as I proceed with my narrative. Perhaps, like a good portrait painter, I may succeed in depicting more than one figure in such wise that you will recognize it as a good likeness, without being acquainted with the original, and feel as if you had very often seen the original with your own bodily eyes. Perhaps, too, you will then believe that nothing is more wonderful, nothing more fantastic than real life. 
and that all that a writer can do is to present it as a dark reflection from a dim cut mirror. In order to make the very commencement more intelligible, it is necessary to add to the letters that soon after the death of Nathaniel's father, Clara and Lothair, the children of a distant relative, who had likewise died, leaving them orphans, were taken by Nathaniel's mother into her own house. Clara and Nathaniel conceived a warm affection for each other, against which not the slightest objection in the world could be urged. When, therefore, Nathaniel left home to prosecute his studies in G. Blank, they were betrothed. It is from G. Blank that his last letter is written, where he is attending the lectures of Spallanzani, the distinguished professor of physics. I might now proceed comfortably with my narration, did not at this moment Clara's image rise up so vividly before my eyes that I cannot turn them away from it, just as I never could when she looked upon me and smiled so sweetly. Nowhere would she have passed for beautiful. That was the unanimous opinion of all who professed to have any technical knowledge of beauty. But whilst architects praised the pure proportions of her figure and form, painters averred that her neck, shoulders, and bosom were almost too chastely mottled, and yet, on the other hand, one and all were in love with her glorious Magdalene hair, and talked a good deal of nonsense about Batoni-like colouring. Note, Pompeo Girolamo Batoni, an Italian painter of the 18th century, whose works were, at one time, greatly overestimated, returned to text. One of them, a veritable romanticist, strangely enough likened her eyes to a lake by Ristein. Note, Jacob Ristein circa 1625 to 1682, a painter of Harlem in Holland. His favorite subjects were remote farms, lonely stagnant water, deep shaded woods with marshy paths, the seacoast, subjects of a dark melancholy kind. His sea pieces are greatly admired. Return to text. One of them likened her eyes to a lake by Ristyle, in which is reflected the pure azure of the cloudless sky, the beauty of woods and flowers, and all the bright and varied life of a living landscape. Poets and musicians went still further and said, What's all this talk about seas and reflections? How can we look upon the girl without feeling that wonderful heavenly songs and melodies beam upon us from her eyes, penetrating deep down into our hearts, till all becomes awake and throbbing with emotion? And if we cannot sing anything at all passable then, why, we are not worth much. And this we can also plainly read in the rare smile which flits around her lips when we have the hardihood to squeak out something in her presence which we pretend to call singing, in spite of the fact that it is nothing more than a few single notes confusedly linked together. And it really was so. Clara had the powerful fancy of a bright, innocent, unaffected child, a woman's deep and sympathetic heart, and an understanding clear, sharp, and discriminating. Dreamers and visionaries had but a bad time of it with her, for without saying very much, she was not by nature of a talkative disposition, she plainly asked by her calm, steady look and rare ironical smile, How can you imagine, my dear friends, that I can take these fleeting shadowy images for true living and breathing forms? For this reason, many found fault with her as being cold, prosaic, and devoid of feeling. Others, however, who had reached a clearer and deeper conception of life, were extremely fond of the intelligent, childlike, large-hearted girl. But none had such an affection for her as Nathaniel, 
who was a zealous and cheerful cultivator of the fields of science and art. Clara clung to her lover with all her heart. The first clouds she encountered in life were when he had to separate from her. With what delight did she fly into his arms, when, as he had promised in his last letter to Lothair, he really came back to his native town and entered his mother's room. And as Nathaniel had foreseen, the moment he saw Clara again, he no longer thought about either the advocate Coppelius or her sensible letter. His ill-humor had quite disappeared. Nevertheless, Nathaniel was right when he told his friend Lothair that the repulsive vendor of weather-glasses, Coppola, had exercised a fatal and disturbing influence upon his life. It was quite patent to all, for even during the first few days he showed that he was completely and entirely changed. He gave himself up to gloomy reveries, and moreover acted so strangely. They had never observed anything at all like it in him before. Everything, even his own life, was to him but dreams and presentiments. His constant theme was that every man who delusively imagined himself to be free was merely the plaything of the cruel sport of mysterious powers, and it was vain for man to resist them. He must humbly submit to whatever destiny had decreed for him. He went so far as to maintain that it was foolish to believe that a man could do anything in art or science of his own accord, for the inspiration in which alone any true artistic work could be done did not proceed from the spirit within, outwards, but was a result of the operation directed inwards of some higher principle existing without and beyond ourselves. This mystic extravagance was in the highest degree repugnant to Clara's clear, intelligent mind, but it seemed vain to enter upon any attempt at refutation. Yet when Nathaniel went on to prove that Coppelius was the evil principle which had entered into him and taken possession of him, at the time he was listening behind the curtain, and that this hateful demon would in some terrible way ruin their happiness, then Clara grew grave and said, Yes, Nathaniel, you are right. Coppelius is an evil principle. He can do dreadful things, as bad as could a satanic power which should assume a living physical form. But only, only if you do not banish him from your mind and thoughts. So long as you believe in him, he exists and is at work. Your belief in him is his only power. Whereupon Nathaniel, quite angry because Clara would only grant the existence of the demon in his own mind, began to dilate at large upon the whole mystic doctrine of devils and awful powers. But Clara abruptly broke off the theme by making, to Nathaniel's very great disgust, some quite commonplace remarks. Such deep mysteries are sealed books to cold, unsusceptible characters, he thought, without being clearly conscious to himself that he counted Clara amongst these inferior natures, and accordingly he did not remit his efforts to initiate her into these mysteries. In the morning, when she was helping to prepare breakfast, he would take his stand beside her and read all sorts of mystic books to her until she begged him, But my dear Nathaniel, I shall have to scold you as the evil principle which exercises a fatal influence upon my coffee. For if I do as you wish, and let things go their own way, and look into your eyes whilst you read, the coffee will all boil over into the fire, and you will none of you get any breakfast. Then Nathaniel hastily banged the book to, and ran away in great displeasure to his own room. Formerly he had possessed a peculiar talent 
for writing pleasing, sparkling tales, which Clara took the greatest delight in listening to. But now his productions were gloomy, unintelligible, and wanting in form, so that, although Clara, out of forbearance towards him, did not say so, he nevertheless felt how very little interest she took in them. There was nothing that Clara disliked so much as what was tedious. At such times her intellectual sleepiness was not to be overcome. It was betrayed both in her glances and in her words. Nathaniel's effusions were, in truth, exceedingly tedious. His ill-humour at Clara's cold, prosaic temperament continued to increase. Clara could not conceal her distaste of his dark, gloomy, wearying mysticism, and thus both began to be more and more estranged from each other without exactly being aware of it themselves. The image of the ugly Coppelius had, as Nathaniel was obliged to confess to himself, faded considerably in his fancy, and it often cost him great pains to present him in vivid colours in his literary efforts, in which he played the part of the ghoul of destiny. At length it entered into his head to make his dismal presentiment that Coppelius would ruin his happiness the subject of a poem. He made himself and Clara, united by true love, the central figures, but represented a black hand as being from time to time thrust into their life and plucking out a joy that had blossomed for them. At length, as they were standing at the altar, the terrible Coppelius appeared and touched Clara's lovely eyes, which leapt into Nathaniel's own bosom, burning and hissing like bloody sparks. Then Coppelius laid hold upon him and hurled him into a blazing circle of fire, which spun round with the speed of a whirlwind, and storming and blustering dashed away with him. The fearful noise it made was like a furious hurricane lashing the foaming sea-waves until they rise up like black, white-headed giants in the midst of the raging struggle. But through the midst of the savage fury of the tempest he heard Clara's voice calling, Can you not see me, dear? Coppelius has deceived you. They were not my eyes which burned so in your bosom. They were fiery drops of your own heart's blood. Look at me. I have got my own eyes still. Nathaniel thought, Yes, that is Clara, and I am hers for ever. Then this thought laid a powerful grasp upon the fiery circle, so that it stood still, and the riotous turmoil died away, rumbling down a dark abyss. Nathaniel looked into Clara's eyes, but it was death whose gaze rested so kindly upon him. Whilst Nathaniel was writing this work, he was very quiet and sober-minded. He filed and polished every line, and as he had chosen to submit himself to the limitations of meter, he did not rest until all was pure and musical. When, however, he had at length finished it, and read it aloud to himself, he was seized with horror and awful dread, and he screamed, Whose hideous voice is this? But he soon came to see in it again nothing beyond a very successful poem, and he confidently believed it would enkindle Clara's cold temperament, though to what end she should be thus aroused was not quite clear to his own mind, nor yet what would be the real purpose served by tormenting her with these dreadful pictures which prophesied a terrible and ruinous end to her affection. End of Part 1 of The Sandman Recording by Thomas Copeland.